Welcome to the First Church Orlando podcast. Here you will find recordings of weekly sermons, devotions, interviews, and seminar recordings from the First United Methodist Church of Orlando. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the podcast. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning with verse 17. Don't obstruct the legal rights of an immigrant or orphan. Don't take a widow's coat as a pledge for a loan. Remember how you were a slave in Egypt, but how the Lord your God saved you from that. That's why I'm commanding you to do this thing. Whenever you're reaping the harvest of your field and you leave some grain in the field, don't go back and get it. Let it go to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows, so that the Lord your God blesses you in all that you do. Similarly, when you beat the olives from your olive trees, don't go back over them twice. Let the leftovers go to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows. Again, when you pick the grapes of your vineyard, don't pick them over twice. Let the leftovers go to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows. Remember how you were a slave in Egypt. That's why I'm commanding you to do this thing. This is the word of God for the people of God. So in the month of January, we, we were dreaming big, right? That was our theme. We're dreaming big. In February, our theme is service, and the, the, the kind of the title for this series is A Better World is Possible, which really is kind of a dreaming itself, isn't it? It's a particular kind of dreaming. It's dreaming, believing that change can happen, that the world can be better than it is. Really, it's, it's leaning into Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. That there is a kingdom among us, a heavenly realm, where there is justice and love and peace that is waiting to be fulfilled. We're daring to believe a better world is possible. Will you say that with me? A better world is possible. With conviction, a better world is possible. We're dreaming with people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who believed that we could be a better nation. You remember he said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, people are created equal. We're dreaming with people like Dorothy Day, who was a, a Catholic social worker among the poor, who said, what we would like to do is change the world. Make it simpler for people to feed, clothe, and shelter themselves as God intended them to do. We're dreaming with people like Desmond Tutu, who just recently died, who fought apartheid in South Africa and won. And he dreamed, saying, God's dream is that you and I and all of us will realize that we are a family, that we are made for togetherness, for goodness, and for compassion really, at its core, isn't dreaming that a better world is possible essentially what it means to be a Christian. We believe in a creator God that loves us and wants the best for us. We believe that God created the world good 
And that God's intent is to redeem and restore all that isn't good and all that's broken. We believe, like we just sang, that we're the body of Christ. We're citizens of God's kingdom. We're the hands and feet of God in the world in partnership with God to make the world better than it is. That we've been given the commission for feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, welcoming the stranger, siding with the oppressed, defending the powerless, speaking up for the voiceless, tearing down strongholds of racism, prejudice, and oppression, working for positive change, never giving up on believing that a better world is possible. You may have uh, learned at some point, I, I suspect you've heard of this, about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Are you familiar with that? I think I learned it in high school in a psychology class. Abraham Maslow was a psychologist who said that there's basically five human needs that we all need to fulfill in our lifetime to live complete, full lives. And it's often presented, as you see, as a, as a, par, as a pyramid. And the basic idea is that you have to meet the lower levels of needs before you can ascend to the higher levels of need. And so there's five of them. The first is physiological, the need for food, water, clothing, shelter. The second is safety. I need to know that my life is secure. I'm not in danger. The third is about love, belonging. That's about relationship, our connections with each other. Fourth is esteem, my own sense of my value, my worth. And then the top, the ultimate, is self-actualization, which is that sense of my life has purpose, my life has meaning, I'm fulfilling what I am here to be and to do. Now there's the wisdom in Maslow, is you can't get to the higher levels if you're focused on the lower level, right? If I'm hungry, I'm not thinking about my value and my worth, I'm thinking about my hunger, right? If I think my life's in jeopardy, I'm probably not signing up for a dating app. Right? I mean, you have to get the basics secured before you can move to the higher levels. Now, I, I'm not an expert on Maslow. Um, I don't know if he ever addressed spirituality, but it's not hard to see how spirituality is connected to love and belonging. The spirituality is connected to relationship, to my sense of value, my worth. Where does my value and worth come from? I'm a child of God. Or even my self-actualization, my fulfillment, that I am who God made me to be. Now, I've heard missionaries say that you can't offer somebody the bread of life, scripture, if they don't have bread for their stomach. That oftentimes you have to meet the physical need before you can address the spiritually. We might say it in other ways, right? I, I can't offer somebody spiritual living water if they don't have clean water to drink. I can't talk to somebody about their soul if their body is struggling, if they're hungry, if they're in pain, if they have a physical need, right? Does this make sense? Right? We, we have to meet basic human needs because we're an, an entity. We're, we're one thing. We can't separate who we are spiritually and who we are physically. That's why we often care for such basic things as food, clothing, caring for the needs of others. I wonder if that's at the core of why Jesus said, I was hungry and you gave me food. I'm thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothes to wear. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. When you have done it, for one of the least of these, you have done it for me. 
course, Jesus talked a lot about this kind of stuff, right? He talked about hoarding, right? The, the danger to us if we start gathering up into barns all of our stuff while people around us are going without. Later, St. John Chrysostom would write, not to share one's wealth with the poor is to steal from them and to take away their livelihood. It's not our own goods which we hold, but theirs. So as you know, we, we in the month of January, collected blue bags for the Christian Service Center. Um, as we were gathering up our stuff at the house, it occurred to me that I have winter coats hanging in my closet that I haven't worn in years. And some of them were like brand new. I've never even put them on in years. Why do I need them hanging in my closet, right? When somebody else living on the streets needs warmth now. And then it occurred to me that I have a whole stack of jeans in my closet that I can't wear anymore. And I don't want to talk about why. It's not because of the style. Right? What good are they doing me sitting on a shelf when somebody else might need them for their job? And by the way, giving away the stack of jeans and the jackets, I still have extra. I bet you do too. It was such a privilege to take those bags over to the Christian Service Center. We took about 200 of them. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, somebody, I think they estimated that on average one of those bags is worth about 60 bucks. How much do we give? About $12,000 worth of food and clothing and shoes and socks. You want to pat yourself on the back for just a minute? Isn't that awesome? How about, I mean, in one month, you all did that. And you always do, by the way. When we collect school supplies in August, you all give. When we collect food for feed for the need, food feed the need, you give. When we collect around Christmas, you give. We just talked about books. Have you seen the stack of books downstairs? I mean, this is just what you all do. It seems to be in the nature of our church, the DNA of our church. And I can tell you, I'm so proud of you for that. I'm so proud to be your pastor when we know that that, that is who we are, that we are a generous people. So I want you to hear today that this sermon is not me trying to coerce you to do better. <laughs> I do that sometimes. Today is, thank you. Today is, I'm proud of you. Today is, I'm celebrating with you that this is something we already know and do. And maybe today's purpose really is just to remind us of the why. To go back to why this is such an important biblical teaching. We talk about this in lots of different ways. Some people use the word charity, which by the way is the Greek word for, anybody? Love. Love. Right? We talk about charity, talk about social services, sometimes we even call it welfare, and that kind of has a bad name in this country, but in other places people talk about welfare as a, as a beautiful thing, a generous thing. This is about us helping others. Methodists have called it social holiness. But the word I want to introduce today is mercy. And, and in a couple of weeks I'm going to contrast mercy and justice, both which are very important. Today we're talking about mercy. Now what is Mercy. You may have heard of the organization Compassion International. They do child sponsorship. They define mercy like this. Mercy is the compassionate treatment of those in distress. It has the connotation of benevolence and kindness. Mercy is often used in a religious context of giving alms, caring for the sick or the poor. Mercy is a gift given to someone who is suffering 
by someone acting with compassion. Mercy, in a sense, implies I'm not obligated to help you. I don't know you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a connection to you. I, I'm no, there's no law making me give to you. But there's something in my heart that, that I want to give to you. That I, I moved with compassion and care to help in some way alleviate your suffering. That's mercy. I'm not under obligation to do it. I'm doing it because it's coming from my heart, right? So where does this come from biblically? Well, you heard it in our reading this morning from Deuteronomy. It's sort of a strange place to begin. But the core idea of mercy comes from this, this story in the Old Testament where the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt. Originally, they had been welcomed into Egypt as guests, but then over the years had been forced into slavery and abused and neglected and harmed. And they cried out to God, God heard, and then in compassion reached out to them, right? Sent Moses to be their deliverer, brought them out of Egypt, and they were going to be their own nation in a promised land that God was providing. But God said, you remember how you were treated in Egypt? You're not going to do that. Right? You were abused. We're not going to abuse other people. You were forced into slavery. We're not going to enslave other people. You were harmed. We're not going to harm other people. It was that memory, that experience of suffering that shaped the culture and ethos of Israel to say, we will function differently in the world. And, and there was a special attention given to those who were considered to be the most vulnerable. And in the ancient world, those were widows, women who, whose husband died, they had no property rights, uh, orphans, children who were left without parents for, because of war or disease or whatever the case may be, and the immigrant, the foreigner that's among us who has no rights necessarily in our society. Widows, orphans, and foreigners or strangers. Now did you hear in today's reading there were specific acts of mercy that were commanded of the Israelites. It said, don't ever deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice. That means in court, treat them fairly. It said, never take a widow's blanket. It may be all she has as collateral on a loan. And it said specifically, when you farm, if you have a vineyard, if you have grain in the field, if you have an orchard, don't pick it bare. Don't go back tomorrow and see what you missed. Leave grain on the stalk. Leave grapes on the vine. Leave olives on the tree so the poor can have something to eat. This was embedded in the culture of the ancient Israel. And it's rooted in this very simple idea, Deuteronomy 24, 18. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. It's, it's in essence saying, don't forget where you came from. You ever heard that before? Right? Don't, don't, don't forget your people back at home. Right? Don't forget what you've been through. Don't, don't forget the hard times. Don't forget when you were hungry and tired and abused. Do better than was done to you. It almost sounds a little bit like the golden rule, doesn't it? Do better than was done to you. Now in the Old Testament, this command to care for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant was a commandment. It was ethical. It was a, a moral requirement, a duty. But Jesus comes along and gives it new meaning. He takes it to a deeper spiritual place, as he often does. 
right? Not only did he teach that we're to care for the poor, which he did a lot, he demonstrated it, right? He healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he treated all people with with dignity and respect. And not only did he demonstrate care for the poor, not only did he teach care for the poor, he came. His incarnation is the embodiment of care for the poor. He came in poverty. Where was he born? In a barn. As soon as he was born, he had to be on the run with his parents to Egypt as a refugee. When he returned, he went back to Nazareth, which was considered to be kind of this backwoods place. What good ever comes from there, right? Grew up with working class, peasant type people. When he started the public phase of his ministry, he was a homeless person. Birds have nests and foxes have den and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was dependent upon the generosity and care of others. You ever think about that? That we worship a homeless Savior? That we follow a poor man? Right? He lived this out completely and fully. This is the the nature of who he was. Right? And then he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus embodies this for us. Um, As you've heard me say before, I've been on many trips to Guatemala. Most of those are with teams. I've taken hundreds and hundreds of people on work trips to Guatemala. And I always prepare the team before I go, you know, do a little bit of cultural training and that kind of thing. And always I have, until a certain point, um, part of the training was how to handle when someone comes and asks you for money. When you're in a place like Guatemala and you look like people like us, people notice you're there, you're, you're a foreigner, and that probably means you have money. And so especially in the market, you get approached a lot, especially by children, to give you money. And my encouragement through the years is, don't give. Like once you start, it's a slippery slope, word gets out quickly, you'll get bombarded by everybody in the market. We're already there doing a lot of good work. Don't, don't, like just, it's, it's a hard thing to do, but just don't do it, right? Well, I was given this instruction on one of the trips. I was taking a group of college students. And one of the students named Scott raised his hand in the meeting. He says, I disagree with you. He said it respectfully, but he challenged me. He said, I think if I have it, I will give it. He said, I think that we should do that. We have things that they might need. We should do that. And there was something in that interaction that convicted me. And the truth is that I was already convicted about it. I was already struggling around this issue. And when Scott said that, the first person that came to mind was a woman that I had encountered many times, that a little woman, frail, in a wheelchair, and every time I saw her, and I saw her many times, she would ask me for money, and I would try to politely say, no, I'm sorry. And so she came to mind, and I thought, okay, next time I see her, I'll give her some money. I'll find out what her name is. Okay. You know, I sensed that God was pushing me. So that week, I went looking for her, and she was nowhere to be found, which was really strange because I used to run into her all the time, which was pretty awkward. I started looking for her everywhere. I went to every place I knew I had seen her before. I couldn't find her anywhere, day after day. And then one day, I found another woman in a wheelchair, and I felt so guilty, I thought, I'm just going to stop and help her. That's her. Her name is Anastasia, and through the years, she and I have become friends. Every time I'm there, we find a moment to connect. And 
and I give her what I can, and we have a few moments together, which is awkward. She doesn't speak well and only speaks a Mayan language, and I don't do that very well. But we have this moment. I never would have connected with Anastasia, who I care deeply for, if not for Scott challenging me, are you sure? <laughs> are you sure that this is what God wants us to do? That's not where the story ends. It was a strange week. So later in the week, I was in a hurry to get something done. It was in the evening. It was about to be dark. My group was waiting for me. I was running. I don't even remember what it was. I was hurrying. And guess who I run into? The woman in the wheelchair. Not Anastasia, the other one. I couldn't stop. I was in a hurry. I had to get this done. But I immediately felt this, like, I can't believe this. I finally see her, and now I haven't helped her. So I turn around. I go back. Literally been just, you know, maybe a block go back and she's gone little frail woman in a rickety wheelchair on cobblestone streets there was nowhere for her to go I was convinced God was sending a tormenting angel just to mess with me she was gone I, she's not an angel believe me she's not an angel I've since met her her name is Maria we meet we talk every time I help her when I can the conversation we have every time I see her is that I'm cheap and I don't give her enough money. That's our full relationship. I don't have the bond with her that I do with Anastasia. The week isn't over. God was playing games with me. So we were working. We were building two houses in this village up on the mountain. And I was walking between the two, two houses alone down this path. And along comes this guy. He's about this tall. Mayan men are short. Carrying a log on his shoulder at least three times the size of he is. It was huge. I, I would have had trouble carrying it. He's walking up a hill carrying the log. What's the image I'm getting? Jesus carrying his cross. I immediately I thought, he looks like Jesus carrying his cross. All those images we see of Calvary, right? And as we approach each other, I'm carrying a bottle of water. He looks over and says, can I have a drink of your water? No one has ever asked to drink out of my water bottle before, ever. And I've never let anybody drink out of my bottle. I mean, my mouth's been on it. I don't know this guy. His mouth's going to go on it. But immediately, I heard in my head, I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. Whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. I gave him my water. I think God was having a really good time playing games with me that week. I think he might have been a tormenting angel, by the way, Tulsa. <laughs> The point is, sometimes God pushes us, right? We have, our, we have our reasons, our rationale for what we do and what we don't do, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And sometimes they stop us from knowing someone, caring for someone, doing what we can do to make their life better. The question is, how and who and when? Right? So one day, Jesus was approached by a, a religious expert, a lawyer, a scribe, they called them. Somebody that really understood the Old Testament law. And he said to Jesus, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus, as Jesus often did, didn't answer the question. He just asked another question, right? He did that a lot. He said, well, what do you read in Scripture? How do you interpret it? And the lawyer gave the great commandment. He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus agreed. Do this, he said, and you will live. It's a great commandment. It could have just ended right there, but the legal expert said to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? 
And go back to the initial question. He said, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life, to have eternal life? It doesn't say, what can I do? What opportunities are there for me? What must I do? What's required? What's the, what's the rule? What's the obligation? What must I do to check the box? He was trying to narrow down, like, okay, I understand i got to love my neighbor, but let's just be clear, who is my neighbor? Right? You must meet people I know and like and live near me and share my values that I, you know, that I have some affection for, right? So Jesus tells a story. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. He talks about a Samaritan who discovers someone on the road, a Jewish merchant who's been attacked and beaten and robbed and left for dead. And you know the story, right? Jews and Samaritans hate each other. But the Samaritan stops and he cares for him. He puts himself at his risk, right? To stop and to be inconvenienced to care for a stranger who he knows otherwise they would hate each other. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him to an inn. He pays for him to be cared for and to recuperate. You see what Jesus did in that parable? He said, this is what it means to love your neighbor. First of all, he expands who my neighbor is. My neighbor includes strangers. My neighbor includes people who have nothing they can do for me. This isn't going to be reciprocal. My neighbor includes my enemy. And notice he does a second thing. He defines love of neighbor in terms of acts of service. He loved, the Samaritan loved the merchant by caring for him, by providing for him, by sacrificing for him. Jesus shows us that love is more action than feeling. So friends, the point of today's message is just the reminder of what you already know. A better world is possible. That's why we do what we do. That's why we give generously. That's why we act in mercy. Because we have this core, fundamental conviction. A better world is possible. How is it possible? With God's help with our generosity, by acting in mercy. A better world is possible. Let's pray. So Lord, we believe that. We don't always act on it, but we believe it. Lord, may you turn our beliefs into convictions, and may you turn our convictions into action, and may you bless our actions. That a world may not, a better world may not only be possible, but a better world may be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and that you will listen again in the future. If you enjoyed today's message, we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform and share it with others on social media. For more information about First Church Orlando, please visit our website at firstchurchorlando.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If this podcast is a valuable resource to you, we invite you to give to this ministry by making a financial contribution at firstchurchorlando.org forward slash give. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.